Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. I hope everybody is doing well. Um, and we are really, really lucky today. Um, Marshall, I am so excited to have you here. And we're going to be talking about um, everything that you have done with Hubbard Peanut Company, Tubbs for short, correct? Correct. Yes, sir. Okay. And um, I'm just pumped about this conversation. So if you don't mind, we have kind of a tradition where I let you introduce yourself and kind of your journey of how you ended up working in the family business. Sure. Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to be here this morning. Um, well, I, I think like most uh, members of a family business, they grew up in it in some capacity. Um, I, my grandparents started the business from their home back in the 50s and, um, and ran it for a while until my mother came in um, in the late 70s. Um, I was obviously a, a young boy in the 80s and, and uh, remember um, going around the production line and, and riding on the conveyor belts and doing all that kind of fun stuff as a little kid um, and always knew the business and the brand and and, and would, you know, started out my, my sales journey, giving peanuts to my teachers for holiday gifts in elementary school and, and things of that nature. So always been working. There was the, no apples for the teacher, huh? No apples. It was strictly peanuts here in oh. Southampton County. But uh, yeah, so I, I started my sales and marketing journey as an elementary school student, handing out the product and promoting it around town. Um but, you know, I, I, I did, I was never um, felt any pressure to come back into the business. I was, I was always interested in kind of my own path. And after college, um, I, was a, I was a history and environmental studies major um, and wanted to, to travel and explore the world. And um, international education was kind of my path to do so, to, to have someone pay me to travel and, and to continue my education abroad. And so I worked for um, the JET program, which is uh, through the Japanese Ministry of Education, lived in a small village in Japan um, and taught English and was kind of a cultural liaison between American culture and, and rural J Japanese culture, which was great. Um, and then I was on this path to start an international school in my mind and, and started working for a gap year program. And I led college students uh, on study abroad trips all over the developing world, um, you know, Africa and India, Central South America, and Southeast Asia. So spent most of my, my 20s abroad studying the world, studying cuisine from all over the world, just different cultures and, and, um, and, and history and, and, loved, and loved that. And um, came back and taught uh, geography and world history at a, for a stint. At, a, at a, our local uh, school here in, in Southampton County, and then um, was uh, inspired to start a, a different business. And so I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to work on a startup uh, that never really took off. But while I was working on that startup, I wanted to get more involved in the food business. Um, and so I started working at Whole Foods as a specialty foods buyer. And I, I was uh, at, at that point, I was learning a lot more about branding, packaging, just CPG in general. Um, and then I was I was working to get hubs into Whole Foods South while working in the specialty food department, which was which was great. So I, I did that, but was able to really learn um, specialty food, grocery and, and that side of the business uh, before coming back to, to work for hubs. Um, and so the, the startup obviously never, never took off, but I, I gained a lot more experience and knowledge in, in CPG 
um, and specialty foods at Whole Foods, which is great to learn their culture and to kind of work for someone else to see how a different corporate um, entity was structured. And uh, so that that was very good for me. Um, and then kind of came back back and, and pitched my family kind of the sales and marketing role that I thought we needed. And so that I moved back here. I started working in 2014 remotely and then moved back in 2016 um, to really focus on <clears throat> sales, marketing, and now kind of transitioning into leadership. So it's been a very circuitous route back to Virginia, but I'm here and I'm, I'm really thrilled. between riding on the conveyor belt in high school and coming back to, you know, the business. How long were you out? Well, so I, I went to boarding school. I left when I was 15 and then okay. I moved back essentially um, at, at 34. Um, yeah. And so I was gone for, for quite some time. Um, but I always, you know, while I was traveling and doing a lot of international development and international relations work, like, it, it was great and, and a wonderful experience, but I always felt drawn back to our community. We're, we're a small rural town. Franklin is about 45 minutes west of, of Norfolk, Virginia Beach. And, um, you know, there are some higher rates of, of, of poverty, obesity, diabetes. We've got our educational system is struggling a little bit. So there, there were a lot of things that I was seeing um, that we were working on abroad. And I was getting a, a glimpse into these communities that I felt like were the same issues at home. Right. And so it was and I knew that with this business, we we're very much community oriented and community driven. That's something that my grandparents instilled in my my mother and, and my father grew up in this town and had the same thing. So I felt like business really could be a part of a small community and, and hopefully be impactful in, in many different ways. And so that's part of what my what I've brought to the to the table or at least trying to articulate that message across our company and community differently so I love it. thank you for sharing that's it's a great journey you the, your your skill set you know had you not done that think about everything that you brought back to the business number one there's just so many different things that you brought back to the business but what I one of the things I love the most is the fact that you're like I'm out doing the work for other people's communities. Would be really nice to be able to do some of that right back at home. Sure. And, and you're yeah. a thousand percent correct. We need, you know, people like you and us and what we're doing with, you know, our community. And we try to give back as often as we possibly can as well. And we look at how we do it a little differently. Um, meaning that like when we're working and coaching one of the family businesses that we work with, you know, we're impacting every one of those employees and all of their families. And so it, it, it goes that way. But um, I love I love what you're saying. Love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I was I was totally inspired by the culture that John Mackey created at, at um, Whole Foods, honestly, and his book, Conscious Capitalism, really laid out um, to me a, a, a strategy and a, and, a, and a playbook on how companies can be yeah. impactful in their communities. Now, he obviously they they've sold and things have changed a little bit with that culture and and everything. But I think the the intent, the passion, the heart was all something that really I related really well to. So yeah. So here's a question about whole. I mean, Whole Foods, and I, mean, I know that's. Did you know what the company, the corporate culture, and the company values were when you were working there? Oh, absolutely. And that was one of the things that I was attracted to to learn from that example, um, for sure. And. I mean, I think healthy eating, healthy communities, all of all of their their mission, it was important. So that was why that was where I started as I started part time there while I was working on this startup and I evolved into a full time role in buying there. Um, but, yeah, it was I was attracted to that culture and um, that company for sure. I, I, yeah, I find that culture driven and values driven companies just really do tend to make a bigger difference in the communities that they that they, that they work, live and work in. And that's now what you're bringing over to Hubs. And my gut says, you know, the family had been doing that for years. It wasn't oh. just like, you know, Marshall went to, to Whole Foods and saw this wonderful thing. You've been yeah. doing it, but you're just probably figuring out what are the actions to live by and how do we make sure that people know that we're doing this consciously, not Correct. unconsciously. 
Yeah, it's, it's tying it all together. We've certainly been very much a part of this community since our inception, but like, how do we have a, a common, like now we have partnered with the Food Bank of Southeast Virginia, and that's kind of our arm. Like it's, it's we're, we're trying to, to consciously promote some of that and be a part of that. And, you know, we're, we're our team is, we've donated space. So the Food Bank is actually based in one of our warehouses where we do the production of the backpack programs and things of that nature. So it's, it has been something that we've been, been consciously trying to figure out what it is that we can stand for. And being in the food business, obviously food insecurity is a worthy cause, right? Absolutely. And so, Matt, Maslow's um, bottom of the pyramid. You've got to get yeah. Taken care of if people don't feel safe and they don't feel that they've got those basic needs met, it's really hard to be thinking about, you know, bigger and better things. I love that. Thank you. You can't get a job if you're hungry. Yeah, right. Yeah, first things first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, you know, the the peanut company. Let's talk about Hubbard's Peanut Company. And do you mind sharing, you know, that the history and, and kind of where did they start? When and how did you know what's developed through the years? Um, and then I'll poke, you know jump in every now and again and uh, ask some other questions. Sure. Well, it's it's a very much a homegrown business that my my grandmother Dot Hubbard started from her kitchen um, in 1954. She my, my great grandfather had a, had a peanut farm, and she was a school teacher. But she was literally handpicking the largest peanuts that she could find out of her father's farm and had a unique way of cooking them. Um, and it was it's called blister fried cooking. So she would soak them in hot water and then fry them in oil. And that was kind of the local way, the specialty way of, of cooking peanuts. And and but she would take the largest ones out of out of the farm, cook them in this unique way and then give them to friends um, just as a gift, like some of her, her colleagues from college or whatever. And then people started asking her for them. You know, that's just like kind of the standard how a business develops. Like, hey, you've got a product. There's a demand. So my grandfather started taking uh, the peanuts to the hardware stores and the pharmacies. And at the time, Planters was right down the road. And so they're in Suffolk, Virginia, and they're still a, ma a major player in, the, in this area. But they dry roast. Virginia peanuts, but it's a it's a different cook process. They're not using the same quality of peanuts that that we use. So my grandfather said, "Hey, you know, planters are a nickel. Well, hubs are twice as big. They're prepared differently and are twice as good. So they command twice the price." So he started selling them for a dime next to a nickel bag of, of planters, and that's kind of how the sales portion of that all started, um, which 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 is great. And the specialty category of Virginia peanuts was born. This area has always been known for peanuts. They came in the late 1600s, um, but it wasn't until the early 1900s that, that planters kind of commercialized peanuts and they became a, a commodity snack product. But um, we are the original. Go ahead. Sorry, you're the original. Specialty peanut. And um, and now we create we have this gift category of peanuts that represents our region very well. And there's a lot of other companies that have followed DOT and HJ's model, but we are proud that we kind of started that trend as a specialty gift quality peanut. Love it. Do you mind sharing like your, when as peanuts are grown, how are they grown? I don't think everybody even knows, you know, what type of plant is, a, is our peanuts come from and whatnot. Yeah, that's a great question. And so the t they're technically more like a, a bean. So they're a legume that grow into the ground. Uh, they're planted in, in May um, and they grow throughout the summer, which, which is great. Um, we have wonderful soil here in Virginia. All of our peanuts are grown in Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. So it's that nice sandy, loamy, humid soil. Um, but so they're, and then they're harvested in, in the uh, fall. But peanuts um, are, are great because they require a lot less water than other um, nuts and other tree nuts like almonds that are grown in California, which has trouble with droughts and, and sometimes of the year, not this week, but, um, um, but yeah, so peanuts have uh, grow really well here and, and don't require nearly the same kind of water that we do. And then we harvest them in the fall. Um, and yeah, it's. So Dot and HJ, right? Did I get that right? HJ? Yep. HJ. Okay. Um, they they created this specialty category of peanuts that they're giving away as gifts. And this yep. is back in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And now 
what happens? You know, what is, you know, where do they go where, you know, from there? Well, so one of the reasons we were able to grow and so much of our marketing until, I mean, it still is, is, is just word of mouth marketing. So there's a great paper mill here in town and it was, it was union camp prior to international paper buying it. And, you know, we had a lot of people that would come through the community and um, they would take them back um, to their homes. And so I think the, the word of mouth and the kind of the mail order business developed in this really small town because we had a fortune 50 company that had salespeople come in that 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 liked our it's a product that represents this region so they would take them to their homes and and then share them and then we we just slowly over over the, you know the 60s 70s 80s built this mail order business um, and we are still primarily a direct consumer brand um, I'd say, well, it, it's continuing to come down a little bit, but I'd say 60 plus percent of our business is still D to C, which is wonderful because we have a, a huge segment of, of customers that way. Um, but so, so that was, that was our primary, we didn't really have a lot of wholesale accounts other than those small mom and pop pharmacies, hardware stores and, and such. Um, but then my mother really started diversifying some of that in the nineties and early two thousands. And I, and after being at Whole Foods and, and such, one of my strategies to continue the, the vision for the family was to was to grow our wholesale presence um, in, in ver, uh, various regions around the country. And so what part of what my first kind of role was, was to um, discover these markets and and work with other regional chains like a Zupans in Oregon or a central market in Texas or a fresh market in, in North Carolina. Wegmans up in Rochester, New York, which is obviously a wonderful company and a, and a great partner. Um, but so that's that's kind of our business has evolved a little bit um, from just D to C to having uh, a footprint and some national specialty chains. Um, but we, we still um, I think our model is, is to continue that and to grow the, the D to C piece of it. Um, and I don't think our goal is ever really to get into every every grocery store, every convenience store, because we are a specialty product and we and we are a little more expensive and want to maintain that quality. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we are at the moment. Yeah, I love it. No, I thank you for thank you for sharing. Tell us, tell me about the transition a little bit from grandparents to your mom. And is mom still involved in the business today? What other family members have been involved in the business? And walk me through that if you don't mind. Sure. Well, um, obviously during, you know, when my mother and uncle and, and aunts were, were growing up, they were helping getting all of the, the boxes packed around the holidays. We were very seasonal um, until, you know, the, the late 80s and early 90s, like our season has begun to ex expand it. But there's been some technological advancements that have helped that. But so she, they all obviously work together um, with building boxes and packaging and getting everything done. But my mother came back in, in 79 um, to start working full time with my grandfather. At that point, my grandmother was having some health issues. And so she's, she didn't work nearly as much on the day to day in the early 80s. And so my, my mother worked closely with my grandfather until the mid 90s, really. And then he started to slow down. Um, but at, during those years, um, I did have uh, one of my uncle worked in production alongside my, my grandfather. My, uh, my, one of my aunts worked and in, in kind of did some techno technological improvements on our software system and kind of trying to automate parts of the company. So they, we, we've all, I, I was working and uh, just doing production jobs, whatever it was on, on the line, putting cans in boxes, but I was answering phones. So my sister as well, answering phones, taking orders, just going, manipulating the system during the season. Um, and so we've all had a, a, a part in some capacity over the years. And so my mom is still very much involved in the business, we just went through um, the largest expansion that we've had in our company's history. And in 2020, we opened our new location, which has a retail market, but also has space for warehousing, shipping. We have a new production line where we, we, we put a chocolate and robing machine in. So we've, we've expanded and diversified our production capabilities over the last two years. So she, she was really um, lead, leading that charge um, to get that project underway. And that's part of what I came home 
to, to do was to, uh, you know, it's time to expand or, 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 or do something else. And so that's, that's what we've been doing the last couple of years. And I think she's going to start slowly taking um, some more time for trips and traveling, but you know, I, I, her office was her childhood bedroom. I don't see her, her leaving that office really anytime soon, but she'll, she'll be more flexible and doing more of the things that she likes to do in her spare time. I think. Tell us your mom's name. Her name is Lynn. Lynn. Nice. I'm going to, I, I, I sat there going, Oh, I made my cardinal error. Your last name is Rabble. Rabel, yeah. Rabel, yeah. See, there's the cardinal sin. As a, as a podcast host, you always ask, how do you pronounce the last name first? And I messed it up, but you know, it's all good. It's tricky. Uh, okay. So, and and mom, right now, like you just said, she wants to do some traveling. And just say, you just peek at her web, at the website, and it's like she wants to visit all of the national parks. How many has she been to those thus far? Do you know? Oh, I, I, you know, I don't know. I know she's been to a dozen of them or so, but I, yeah, I'm. I also want, I have that same goal, you know, traveling's the best. And so um, she'll start doing some more of that for sure. Agreed. My father, that was on his, his, his hit list. And um, we ended up buying him a book of all the national parks. And there was something in there, like you could check them off and a list of, you know, to, to do all those things. So very fun. Got to be one of the best things that our country has to offer is our national park system. I think. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable how diverse our country is, and the landscapes are just beautiful. I mean, we're we're so fortunate that we have that. We are public lands. Yeah. Um. Talk about you know the, the business has been around for a number of years, mm-hmm. so I know that every business goes through some obstacles or some tough times. What were some of the tough times that the you know that are stories that you've heard, whether you were part of them or not, and and how did you know how did the family maneuver those things? Sure. Well, prior to to me coming back to the business, I'd say our biggest challenge was a fire in 1999, right before um, uh, our busy season. So in the fall of of, of that year, um, and that that shut our production down. And so you know our business really um because it's so gift oriented and fourth quarter heavy uh that was obviously devastating and could 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 shut a company down we obviously we have a great insurance partner that was able to to take care of us but then but primarily we have incredible customers that instead of doing christmas presents they basically pushed back to easter presents that year and so our customers were are are so loyal and and so great and we're so fortunate to have the customers that we do um that they they are the only reason that we got through it um to be honest i mean a great insurance partner and incredible customers is is what um help us uh bounce back from that um I'd say that I'd say the fire, obviously, 24 years ago, five years ago was 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 really challenging. And then um, in, in 08, 09, it wasn't only the financial crisis that that hurt us because it, that was it's obviously huge because we work with a lot of companies that use our product as as a gift. Uh, we do customization. And so they'll they'll send all of their customers, clients, peanuts. And so obviously in 08, 09, a lot of our partners were struggling and their businesses closed. So we 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 lost business there. That's a common story. But in the peanut industry in general, during that same time during the financial crisis was the PCA, uh, Peanut Corp of America Salmonella outbreak. And that really put a, a black eye on the peanut industry in general. Uh, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there was a story where um, a, a manufacturer knew that they might have some contaminated product and they let it out into the marketplace and it, and it, it impacted a lot of people. A couple of people died. Uh, that particular individual is is is, is in prison. <laughs> um, but that as far as like what it did to the overall peanut perception across the country was, was really tough because we're, it it put a black eye on the entire industry. And so it it took some time and, and a lot of good marketing initiatives from the national peanut board and, and others to, to promote how wonderful the peanut is from a, a environmental standpoint, from a plant-based protein standpoint, all the nutrients. And, and, and so we had a really black eye in 08, 09, and then it's taken some time to, to gain consumer confidence again, um, you know, whenever you have something like that. So those were 
two things that really stand out to me is, is really uh, hiccups. Uh, uh, despite your normal agriculture issues with a hurricane wipes out a third of the crop, you know, because it, it's during, the harvest is during hurricane season, late September, oh, October. Sure. So there's sure. always there's always the threat of bad storms. And so and we've had issues in the peanut prices spike and the last couple of years have been really challenging, too. I mean, so uh, every every few years, there's a there seems to be a, a pretty big curveball. But we've it, it's our our customers and our team are the reason that we're still pushing. We're pushing 70 years right now. So that's that's really all it is. Good, a good customer base and a wonderful team. Yeah. How many employees today? How many people on the team? And I, and I want to give you an, uh, I want to say thank you for using the word team. I'm a big proponent of, we build teams. We don't have staff. Staff is an infection. Um, so we <laughs> always want to be building teams. Building, building teams for sure. And because of the opening of the hubs vine and the retail market that we now have, it's a 7,000 foot event space with a, it was an old grocery store. And it had um, it had a, a coffee counter and it had a deli and a bakery. So we had a lot of equipment that we inherited. And so because of that, we really have been expanding our, our team um, to, to run that operation. And so we're now around 70. But yeah. but I mean, I would say maybe maybe 15 of those are associated with with the vine and and the, and the lunch counter and the event space that we have coffee counter. And so. Um, but, you know, I'm really pumped because last year was the first year that we were able to bring on a full time production crew. We've had seasonal uh, production crew forever. And um, now we've gotten to a point where we're still we're still close to needing and we're not quite at we need five days of production January, February, March. But, um, you know, it's it's been nice to bring on more people full time to be able to offer benefits, to be able to 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 really be impactful to them. So it's been a, a big couple of years of, of um, employee growth. Um, yeah, love it. Before the show started, before we started recording, I had mentioned that I was with my Vistage group yesterday um, and the CEO roundtable and the person that hosted us. Um, is part of a milk co-op. So it's 260 farmers, 262 farmers that all send their milk to this company. And, and, and you'll understand the relate in a second. And then what they do is they produce, you know, all the milk that's going around, you know, upstate New York and, you know, three or four states around the area, the yogurt, the sour cream, you know, yada, 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 the specialty drinks that are coming from, mm -hmm. from milk and chocolate milk. You, you get the, you get the picture. Oh, yeah. I guess, you know, I'm curious, you know, as you expand and whatnot, is that, you know, how do you envision, do you, you know, could you could you ever get to a point where your farm isn't enough where you have to like bring in other farmers to you know bring in their best crop for your things and just well, uh, so right that's kind of we're already at a place so my great grandfather had a small peanut farm and we unfortunately do not have all the thousands and thousands of acres that it requires to use the top one percent of the crop so we've already partnered with farmers throughout Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina that contract with the shellers. And so that's kind of how the, the peanut industry works. Unless you have a, a massive amounts of land, um, you, you are already having some cooperation there because we're only buying super extra large Virginia type peanuts. So they're literally the highest quality peanuts grown on the planet. And the, the farmers are contracting with the shellers. The shellers are shelling them and grading them um, according to the size, quality, and, and all of that. And so then we're, we're literally just buying the cream of the crop. So that's wow. what my grandmother created. Like uh, She was only buying uh, the peanuts that, that did not go through kind of the filters, so to speak, that stayed on top that didn't go through. And she wanted to take those off and use. So we, it's, a, it's, a, it's a little bit different than the milk concept that you're talking about, but there is a lot of cooperation um, amongst ourselves. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, from my perspective, the big thing about that is it's not just the 70 employees and all the customers, but then there's a whole bunch of farmers that, you know, that you're supporting and help, that, you know, are getting benefit from your company. And I, so I, on Monday and Tuesday of this week, I was visiting our can manufacturer. I haven't been there yet. So one of the things that's really nice, I think, about us is we have a really high quality gift 10 
the packaging is nice. And but I went to the, the can manufacturer and to just look at all of the steps that go into making the can and the people that are. And I was having dinner with their COO and he was talking about, you know, all of the, the things that that can represents to his community. Um, not just ours, but all of the, all the cans that they make. And it really, I mean, that's just what's so remarkable about business. Yes, we all sell stuff, but that stuff is putting food on the table and roofs on our head and like, and it's impacting the greater community on a much larger scale. And it was really interesting to see because we have printed metal cans. So when the metal comes in, all, all how, how they're printed, how they're rolled, cut, and they got, they have 400 plus employees there that are working to just an input to our product as well. And it's, so it's, it really, it's cool to see the whole picture. Yeah. When one of the things that we do when we're coaching businesses where they're worried, you know, working on their strategy um, is we want to, we teach them compete to be unique. Don't compete to be the best. And, and your grandmother picked that up right from the top. You know, only the 1% of the peanuts go through. You'd want the ones that are different than everybody else's. Exactly. Compete that's, to be unique. That's, that's, that's true. Yeah. I love um, it. Let's talk about, so we, we understand the specialty side of the business. Talk to me about the wholesale side. That's the, where, you, where you're out there helping on the store brands, right? Mm-hmm. Well, so there's a there's a couple of different ways that that works. So, so a lot of our partners, which I love, is is a is a strict Hubs brand product that is on the shelf. Um, we have a lot where um, we have a a co branded situation. So Orbis, for example, uh, love that company. It's a great a demographic for our brand: outdoor apparel, active living. But on their label, they tell our story on one side. It's an Orbis brand, but on the side of it, it talks about our story and, and what we do. And, and I love that kind of collaborative approach to some of those accounts. And then we have a company like Wegmans, who it's a pure private label, which um, and we're that we are Wegmans Foods You Feel Good About um, private label peanut. And um, it's when you have the Virginia peanuts in the nice tin or the chocolate covered that they carry um, for, you know, four or five months of the year, that's us. And, and that's a pure, the only trick that people, if they know our brand, we have a key on the top of that can and with, with a little peanut man sticker. And so people that really know hubs and have gone to Wegmans are like, Hey, I think that might be hubs. And you're like, yeah, it is. It is. And, and Wegmans is okay for us to share that we do that. And they're a wonderful kind of partner, but those are the kind of three different approaches to our branding with wholesale partners. Um, I, more and more, I really love the co-branded approach because you have a brand or, or like, let's say Orvis has a brand that their customers already trust. So they know that they're partnering with companies that are like-minded and have a similar vision and, and approach to business. And, and I like being able to partner in, in that capacity. Um, I, I just think that's that's fun. You have a trusted brand. We have a trusted brand. Let's work together. But, you know, obviously you, you as a as a marketer, you're trying to to build your brand as much right. as you can. So getting on the shelf as hubs or or all of our other initiatives that it's really a focus on how do you, you see our logo? You see our brand. You it, it, hopefully to you that represents excellence in peanuts, and that's kind of what we work towards. I I really love the co-branded piece because I think that's so important from a marketing standpoint for those listening. That it's not always about you know getting our brand out there all the time all by itself, but look for places where you can uniquely partner. And you talk you know you talk about Wegmans, who again upstate New York, we all know Wegmans. Um, my wife will tell you that she spends, you know, half of her paycheck there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and when we had seven kids in the house. And so when we had all the kids, yeah, we had a pretty good. <laughs> um, so one of the things that I'll, I'll share that, that Wegmans has co-branded before. So it's interesting that, you know, I would have loved, you know, I love those stories. Um, and Wegmans had co-branded on, um, and uh, they're, they're sub sandwiches that mm -hmm. were they're Wegman subs now, but that was a buddy of mine that I went to high school with, started this submarine, you know, shop, Debella's subs, and Ooh. they, and he had an incredible sandwich and he made the bread himself. And there was just, he had this great recipe, got really high quality meats. And 
the, the first store that he opened and branded and, you know, did all of that stuff. He told the story about his grandfather. And when you walked into this place, it had tin roof ceilings and you, you just felt like you had gone back in time when you were in there. It was an old Italian deli and there was always a line. He had one store, a line at lunchtime that was out the door, regardless of the time of year. And, you know, I know the story because I'm, you know, friends with, you know, Joey DiBella, but he, Danny Wegman went in there, saw the line and he's like, I, I want this. And over time, they put something together. And years ago, when they first did that, it told the story of how their grandfathers both had delis or grocery stores not that far apart. And I just love that story. And I'm part of me is, you know, I understand Wegman's building their brand, yeah. but to me, that story of that connection was more powerful than it is today, if that makes sense. It, well, I, it, it does. And, and, and I think um, that would be something that I will continue to pitch to, to Wegmans when I meet with them, because uh, I, I love their brand and, as well. And I think if we could tie some of that together, because my understanding, um, you know, we, that was a very fortunate account for us. Danny Wegmans was uh, received a can of hubs from, from a friend of his Got it. And, them and said, those are the peanuts that I want in my store. And so that's, the, I understand that we are also a Danny brand, right? Yeah. And so, which has got, which is great that he, that's so cool that he can, he can do that. Um, but, but if he, I would love to figure out how to tell that story on the can at Wegmans, you know, and it's similar to what you just told me. I think that's a, that's a great approach and things are shifting a little bit where people like local artisans and they want to, to connect with a smaller business. We're very much a small business. So I think there's opportunity there too so we'll yeah, see the fact that they're helping you know that's the part that they that i think that is missed and that you know yes we've got this great big brand but you're wegmans but if you're also the brand that's bringing other people success as well now it's just like boom it's a one-two punch i the, i agree and, I, and i'm sure that that's they're having these same discussions and but it, it's a, just a huge change to, to well you know. when we get the, so one of my things is i want danny and colleen on the show because one day so you can take this episode and send that over to them when when we get this thing recorded because i think that there's some really neat things that they do by nature they that that i teach businesses that they don't get, you know, culture and values and, and a lot of the things that were built right into Wegman's theory right from day one. Absolutely. And that Wegman's now that I've been we've been working with them for 20 years or so, I've really started to understand their business and their approach. And I am totally inspired by what they've created as a family business. I mean, there's no better example of, of a family business that's that's really invested in their community, their suppliers, their partners. I, I mentioned Whole Foods. I'm from the South and that's where I didn't have an opportunity to work at Wegmans. Um, but, uh, but it's a similar kind of culture and, but now, but they've maintained this, this, this family dynamic. And so an ideal fit for, for you to interview those two for sure. Um, but yeah, such an inspiration. And we're, I'm just thrilled that they are now in Virginia and in North Carolina. And we take it, we take an hour and an hour trip to go to Wegmans occasionally where my wife will spend her whole paycheck. So it's, and we love it because it's like, we're going to get all these things that we can't get. It's great. All right, so you're on my show. I have this unique ability that my brain can't help, but to put connections and things together based on what you're saying. When you and I spoke to do our pre-show call a while ago, I had mentioned Stephanie Stuckey. Yep. Um, Stucky's pecan logs. I'm telling you, there needs to be a relationship between hubs and Stucky's. So I did a family business podcast uh, not too long ago, and I was connected with Stephanie. And we actually we exchanged a couple of emails. And I love what they what she's been able to do to kind of rebrand, reinvigorate their their company as well. So I, you're giving me a, a reason to follow up with her and, and ping her again and just to have a conversation. I, yes, I, her book is coming out soon. I just pinged her finally and said, you know what? It was after our phone call. I'm like, I'm just emailing her. And I emailed her. She said, of course, I'll come on the show, but I'm working on my book. Let me finish this first. So I, from a standpoint of marketing, 
I just think she's classic textbook, amazing how she connects story to the brand so well. Um, and all of her social media posts, on, you know, I see her on LinkedIn more than any place. I just love how she talks about the Route 66 and the travel. And so all of us that we have, you know, my father, I'm second generation. And one of the things that I just love about the family business, I did, I was the guy that never wanted to do this business. And today I'm more excited about it today after 22 years of doing it than I was when I started. And I love right. what I do. Um, <laughs> I can tell. And that's, that's yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. And, but what's what's unique is like we get to carry on, you know, the legacy of those that came before us. Dad's dad's philosophy and the reason why he chose to work with Lincoln Financial. It wasn't Lincoln many, many years ago. It was Connecticut General. Then it became Cigna Financial. It doesn't matter the the the, the thing. But he heard their phrase was serve first, last and always. And that resonated to him, it wasn't about, you know, back in, you know, 40 years ago, it wasn't about selling a life insurance policy. It was about serving that client and that family and looking at their wills and their estate, you know, documents and looking at their buy-sell agreements and then looking to say, is there any trouble here? Is there anything that they're missing? Oh, look at this trust document. So they got really, these were not attorneys or accountants, but they they dug in back in the 40s and 50s and started to learn this stuff. And so when dad came on board, he was just like, I don't have to sell anything. I just have to consult people and help them and serve them. And <laughs> he was working for the Diocese of Rochester as, you know, somebody that, you know, just loved the Catholic Church and wanted to serve. And so the, when he married my mom, who already had two kids, um, my father had died when I was five. Um, he was just like, he married her and boom, instant family. I'm not going to be able to serve my family on the meager salary that I get from the Diocese of Rochester. So I, I think it's, you know, your grandmother and my father and Steph, you know, Stucky's grandfather. And you, when you put together what they did and their vision about serving the teams that, 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 that worked for them, the customer and providing an incredible experience and product and, you know, those things. And then, and then the communities, yeah, it's Wegmans. Uh, it, it, there's so many connections that the, that that those values matter. Do you do you know what you know? What are Hub's you know company values? Do you mind sharing? Well, I, mean, well, yeah, I mean, I think that's it. It's it's, it's to create a, an environment of excellence for, in our community, our company, our suppliers. Our I mean, just to to be. Yeah, I mean we're we're actually re reworking this mission statement right now as we go. I mean, we've got, we've got this real okay. long mission statement, but it's all about the values on how we treat our our employees, our team, our our company, our cell, our family, all of these things, right? But it's I need I'm, I'm trying to get a more concise like sentence, and so we're working on a. But yes, it that's all right. The, I was with somebody the other day that they had two facilitators helping them do some strategy work and they wanted to get their mission statement right. And they paid a boatload of money to the two facilitators. It was, you know, an expensive day. Um, uh, it was a $30,000 day. And they ended up with their mission statement being three words. It was, that's 10 grand a word. <laughs> <laughs> but that's power. Like it, just keeping it, keeping things simple. Like we've got, like it's like it's a long two sentences where it's like, okay, let's let's get, make this more concise. I don't think I need to spend thirty grand to do that because I, I, I have an idea of what it, what it needs to be. Um, but yeah, I mean that's all what it is. It, it's it's teamwork as through through community efforts, and it's uh, I, yeah yeah. Can't say it better than that. Um, who in the family is part of the business today besides yourself and your mom? Um, as as operational uh, members of the business, it's just the two of us. Um, and then, but we have a family board, uh, and there's seven of us that are on that family board. And so currently, it's our board is just family. Um, but you know, we're five members of our family in the second generation. Um, I'm sorry, there are four in the second generation and three in the third. And so we are. Um, trying to figure out as as we look at succession planning for our board what that is going to is going to look like so are we going to bring on 
additional members to our board as as the second generation retires. You know, we'll, we'll see. Um, I don't think they're they're all pushing 70, but I don't think they're, they're they don't want to re really retire, you know, but we need to start thinking about that. And we are we're we're, we're starting to go through those tough decisions and, and discussions on buy sales and all of these these important, tedious, tough discussions. Exactly. Enter the danger and dive right in there. Um, I, I tell everybody that has been a guest on the show, if ever I can, um, you know, provide any um, references to other people or you have questions, you're as an alumni of the show, I'm, I am happy to help. Thank um, you. I mean, I need it. Yeah. So if you so right now you're in the, the smack middle of doing succession planning right this second. What are some of the other um, goals and desires and what are some of the other things that you've got on your plate priority wise? So in 20, we were doing really large. Uh, when I moved back in 16, we started doing these strategy sessions to get to kind of um, this this 2025 uh, year. So we, we were putting this 2020 plan in place. Um, and most a big part of that strategy was getting the new space, building out the new production line, doing having the retail and event space, all of these things that have just now kind of come to fruition. And so those those infrastructure challenges are now kind of solved in some in some regards. And now the the challenge is we've been so fortunate to have a, a team that's been with us for most of their career. So, We've have we have folks that have been with us 30, 40, some like Stella just retired. She's 44 years with us. And so how to transition and six and and all of our company is in this. We, we've we've transitioned uh, some of the, the technology and infrastructure, but the team members and the personnel like that is going to be that's the big challenge right now. So trying to figure out. Um, where the right people are, because I feel like we've got a great brand, we've we've got um, a, a good vision for the sales and marketing piece, but it's putting the, the people in the right place and trying to organize ourselves a little bit better as we're transitioning people out out of into retirement, um, which is that's that's a big challenge for us right now. I feel like, um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, it's, if you don't mind, I'll share something with you that I think is, and you may do this already, but I have found it to be really helpful is we break down rather than take, we take the names off of the org chart and just put the functions up there. Mm -hmm. And, and then if you take your vision for 10 years from now, or three years from now, or five years, whatever works for you, I'm a big fan three years seems to be like a, a good number. Yeah, and then create the the function chart of what it's going to have to look like three years out, and that little X. Then you then fill in the names of who's accountable for each of the different functions today, and then you know if we're going to be able to do A, B, and C different things, you'll see the different functions. Then you can put in the names who will still be with you, and now I've got to look at it and say, oh, <laughs> there's a, there that we've got some empty seats there. Now I got to be able to figure out who's going to fill those seats. I don't know if that's helpful to you. No, it's, it's that's very helpful. That's kind of exactly what we're in the process of doing is looking at who the people are, what their skill sets are, you know, what, what our needs are and trying to prioritize those discussions. So we're literally like that was a meeting yesterday. I've got one tomorrow and next we're, we're, that's exactly what we're doing. Um, and I think it's a wonderful advice, especially about taking the people, trying to take the people out and looking at the needs. Yeah. the function. Looking at the people's the needs. Yeah. And what their skill sets are, and how do how do we how do we fill, and where are the holes, where are the gaps, for sure. Now we're yeah, I think that's a great idea. Love it. <laughs> um, anything as we you're you've been in a family business for years. People, your sisters, I mean, uncles and aunts, and your mom and grand, you know, just you've been surrounded by this. If you're talking to other family businesses, somebody comes and says to you, Marshall. I'm working in my family business and this is driving me crazy or I'm working in my family business. I love this, but I don't love that. What is, what are some of your pieces of advice specifically, specifically to family members about how do we make this work best for us? I, I think that is every, every family business's biggest challenge, right? And, and the, That's the, why the, I asked the question. The, 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 yeah. The, the different dynamics, but um. I think we all need to take a step back and, and look at, at oneself. 
figure out what it is that that makes you tick and um, and try to bring that into the business as well. Uh, but taking some time away from it, I think is important. Um, I, I do not have the answer to that because I, I do think that's one of the, the biggest challenges. But for me personally, it's, it's how have I been able to to bring some of my interest and desires and um, things to, to the business and, and find things that I enjoy and that I can be, get passionate about. And then, and, and then finding the commonalities with the different family members who have those similar interests. I, because I do feel like I have a very diverse background and, and it can be relatable to many, many different people. Um, and so what, where can we work together? It's like fi finding common ground with each family member on whatever that may be. I think is is key, and that's not just in family business. That's just in life. Like, how do you how do you communicate? How do you find common ground? You know, the more you experience, the more relatable you 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 are. I feel like, and so um, I, to me, I guess that's just been my how I try to interact with people, um, whether they're aunts, uncles, or neighbors or whoever. But um, that is it's just no, that's, it's that's tough. really good advice, and I want to make sure people heard that because your advice is spot on. It's it, at the end of the day, I do a little exercise with family members that what makes it sticky is, you know, somebody says something that triggers that time when your brother tripped you down the stairs or, <laughs> you know, you, you know, mom, mom gave him or her the, the, the special sticker that you didn't get. And that's what there's triggers that happen inside the family business that don't happen anyplace else. But if you can think about this exercise and I just hold up you know, a silver dollar or a quarter and you put it between two people, you and your mom, you and your uncle or whomever, and you just ask them, what do they see? Well, one of you is seeing the heads and one of you is seeing the tails. So from the seat that you're sitting in, you're seeing totally different things, even though you're looking at exactly the same thing. And so if we can, if we can take a moment to say, you know, to your point, let me get relatable with these people. What's important to you? What are you feeling about this situation? What are the goals and objectives that you that matter to you? And then I'll tell you what matters to me. And let's look for where we have some common ground. And let's get the common ground stuff taken care of first. And then we'll work on the stuff that's harder second. But it sounds you, like a great therapy session. Yeah, it and I think that's what's really kind of needed with you know relationship businesses. Yeah. yeah, I've spent eleven years with an organization called the Purposeful Planning Institute, mm -hmm. and um, and now you know, the great place for you to look at is the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. And so a lot of the guys and women that are part of the Purposeful Planning Institute, many of them got involved in the Ultra High Net Worth Institute. And basically there's 10 domains of wealth that they've identified. And a lot of it has nothing to do with money or taxes or the business. It is those relational and societal things. It's health and well-being and legacy and all the things that, you know, people don't like to talk about because it's touchy-feely. But at the end of the day, it's usually an emotion that's stopping the transitions or the conversations from happening. It has nothing to do with the other pieces. Totally. Uh, I, I, I see that for sure. In my experience with our family. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, any I, I love that. The coin exercise just to get the conversation going and to see like how, how similar this is, but how different we are in many ways. Anyway, I, I, I love that. And I appreciate that advice. And yeah. yeah, that's where you, you come on. You, you, the guests don't know it, but they come on the show and I'm I'm hoping to share something with them. I had uh, yeah. one of my favorite moments and I and I started to realize that I could do this with people because I had and I didn't before. I didn't used to like off always offer some little nuggets, but I'm like, this is your time. So let me make it valuable. Fred Matt from uh, Utica Club Beer, Saranac Beer, who also is a supplier of Wegmans was on the show one time. And what he said to me, was like, he goes, I'm trying to figure out how to get back to the COVID time. And I'm like, what? You know, that's crazy talk. What do you think? What do you mean? He goes, well, during COVID, we all banded together because we had a common enemy of getting through this tough time together. And he goes, and now that that's kind of gone, I don't, you know, we, we, you know, I don't feel that same camaraderie any longer. And so I shared with him, you know, what's what we call a, a quarterly thematic event 
You need to build, there's nothing, there's nothing that a good enemy can't help you with or a, a common, a common villain. Everybody wants to go, you know, surround that. So the thematic event was something when he heard that, he's like, oh, I'm so in. I see what you're saying. Yeah. And then he, how do I get everybody in the company around this quarterly event and create an event, create an issue, kind of a thing, create a theme, and then get everybody banded across it would be really kind of cool. So I love these things and working with organizations and companies like yourselves. Um, it, it just, I'm a nerd. At the end of the day, I'm a family business nerd. And so it's like everything about them. I just love digging in. And it came because my father and I had many, many dynamics, no different than everybody else. And I couldn't fix ours. I can't fix ours. I understand my dad today. I respect my father. Like there's no, no tomorrow, but I could not fix ours. So for goodness sake, I'm going to take what I've learned. I'm going to share it with as many people as I can, because it's so much easier to help somebody else than it is to help yourself. <laughs> but thank you. Yeah, I, <laughs> I understand. Um, uh, it's great. Last piece of advice from you, any books or training or things that you've gone through that you said, this was impactful to my life. Somebody else should be going through this or reading this. I, I, I like to read a lot, but one of the most recent books that I, I just finished was Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Ghidorah. He He took 11 Madison Park to the number one restaurant in the world and I think it's a super applicable book to anyone who is in leadership, culture building, just goal driven um, team building. I, I loved his the, his book and his approach, and it's a quick read. Um, it's got some great stories in there. Um, but I think from a customer service standpoint, and and just how to how to engage your team and um, empowering people, I thought that that book in particular, since I just finished it, is top of mind. Right, right. Uh, but unreasonable, ho- unreasonable hospitality. And so um, he he was just on this uh, show called The Big Brunch on HBO. And I have a friend who was a contestant. And he, the contestant actually posted about the book, who's a friend of mine. And I was like, oh, I need to check that book out. We, we see eye to eye on a, lot of, on a lot of things. And I read it. I wrote Will a, a letter uh, just kind of thanking him for the inspiration from what that book was. And he wrote me back and said, man, my, my mother-in-law got me hooked on hubs, you know, years ago. And, and so it was just, it was just kind of a cool connection and a cool story. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that's one, um, you can't be, I think hospitality works in every industry. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. I I'll share with you talking about leadership and building teams and whatnot. Um, I'm reading, uh, Jocko Willink's, um, extreme leadership. Jocko and his partner were you know, Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. And they, it, it is incredible what a job that they do of relating what was happening in combat to what happens in business. And it is identical. And matter of fact, as I'm going through it, a lot of the a lot of the families I serve just happen to be in the construction industry. Mm-hmm. And so when I talk about Patrick Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team, they kind of like, ah, I don't want to play with that. Nah, what do I want to talk about dysfunctions and feelings and stuff like that? Well, Jocko Willings, you know, extreme leader, uh, extreme ownership. Sorry, I said it wrong. Extreme ownership. Um, it's identical. It's the same things, you know, in order to be successful in any endeavor, it's amazing how they translate, whether it's hospitality or the Navy SEALs at the, you know, at the end of the day, the work that they're doing, there's a basic, you know, level of top performers in any industry. They're doing the same thing. So I know that my, you know, I can't wait because I'm going through and reading this book right now, my construction owners and demolition guys, I can't get them to read five dysfunctions of the team, but they'll read extreme ownership. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've taken notes on a lot of these things that you've said, and I and I'll check that one out for sure. That's a, that's a great suggestion. Ah, uh, Marshall Rabin from Hubs Peanuts Hubbard's Peanut Company. This has been a blast. I really really appreciate you sharing with us today. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate the time and all of your insights and advice, and you've given me some homework, and so I'm appreciative of that too. Really am.
Thank you. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this is the Family Biz Show. I've been your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Um, we look forward to sharing more of these great conversations with you on the next episode. Make sure that you subscribe so that uh, you don't miss an episode. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.